ask of you please to stand with me. We will turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. My thanks to everyone who helped us here in singing the praises of God. And I just would remind you how grateful we all should be that we've got people here who are willing to give their time and energies to plan and practice, prepare, and help us to proclaim the glories of God in song. All right, Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 29 through the end of the chapter, 29 through 34. This is the word of God. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Will you pray with me? Lord, Your word is what speaks to us, who you are, what you desire. Your word has authority over our lives. And so now, Lord, as your children, we bow and we commit ourselves to submit to your word. We ask you to teach us so that we'll think differently. We ask you to affect our hearts. We ask you to affect our lives. Change us that we might magnify you and be, as a church and as individuals, display of your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. As we begin this morning, I want you to imagine, now when I say this, don't let it cause you stress, but I want you to imagine that you're going to the hospital for some sort of surgery. It can be a minor surgery, a routine thing, if it makes you not uh, stressed out this morning. But along with that, I want you to imagine that as an offer to save you money, out of kindness, I offer to perform the surgery for you for free. (laughs) It seems to me that you may not allow it, but why? I think there are several good reasons for you not to allow me to perform a surgery on you. I don't have the credentials to perform a surgery. I'm I'm not a doctor. Neither do I have the skill, the ability. So even if you thought that my offer to you was a kind offer, you're not likely to accept it. Now keep those factors that I brought up in mind though, right? If you needed an operation, what do you want? You want someone whose identity is that of a surgeon, yes? 
You want somebody who is kind and not cruel, yes? You wouldn't want a meanie. You want someone who has the skill or the ability to safely perform the operation, yes? If any of those three were taken away, you don't want that person operating on you. So those three factors, identity, kindness, power, they're central to what we see in Jesus in today's passage. No, not uh, from the medical field, of course. But we see them in something far more important. We see them in the work of Jesus as the Savior, as the Christ. So I want to give you a sentence right now that contains our points for the sermon. There's going to be four points in today's sermon, but let me give you the sentence first. So, especially you note-takey types. Write this down. Let the identity of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, and the power of Jesus lead you to follow Jesus. Let the identity of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, and the power of Jesus lead you to follow Jesus. That's what we're going to work through in the text for this morning. Now, before we dive in, let's remember where we've been. We are at the end of the 20th chapter of Matthew. We have seen the miraculous birth of Jesus and how he fulfilled prophecy after prophecy. We've seen Jesus preaching and teaching, healing and caring. We've seen him perform miracles We've even seen him do some miracles and command those who receive those miracles to keep it on the down low. We've seen Jesus opposed by religious leaders, embraced by sinners in need of mercy. Well, as you well know, the ministry of Jesus leads to a point of climax, a point of fulfillment. The teaching of Jesus, the perfect life of Jesus, that's essential. But Jesus is teaching and perfect life, if that's all we had, would do you and me no good without Jesus also performing the singular function for which he came to the earth. Jesus came not only to serve others and to show kindness, which he did, he also came, as he told us in verse 28 of this chapter, the last verse before today's message, that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to this earth to die as a sacrifice, as a substitute, as a payment to God in order to rescue people for God. In Matthew 20, uh, 17 to 19, just a few paragraphs up, Jesus told his disciples that he is now on the way to Jerusalem. He's going to lay down his life and then he's going to come back from the dead. Of course, the disciples followed this pronouncement up with a little fight about which of them gets to be most important. They fought about this even though Jesus had already told them that in the kingdom of God, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And Jesus reminded his disciples that the one who wants to be great in the kingdom of God is the one who will serve others. So today, we pick up in Matthew 20, 29. We're going to watch Jesus do what we've seen him do time and time again. We're going to see Jesus heal. But in the words around the healing, we're going to learn much about Jesus' identity, 
about his character, and about his abilities. We will receive a call. You this morning, if you hear the word of God, will receive a call from God to follow this Jesus. So as I said, let the identity of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, and the power of Jesus lead you to follow Jesus. Let's see how it comes together. Point number one, the identity of Jesus. Our first point is the identity of Jesus. Look at just 29 at the beginning of verse 30. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. The city of Jericho is a beautiful city. and It was a beautiful city in Jesus' day as well. It's known as the city of palms. It has palm trees. It's a nice, temperate, warm climate. In fact, the climate of Jericho is surprisingly mild if you compare it to nearby Jerusalem. Jericho is about one day's journey from Jerusalem, about 15 miles by foot. But, and that's how far apart Jericho and Jerusalem are, but there's a very significant difference in the elevation between Jerusalem and Jericho, about 3,000 miles. Have you guys ever escaped the Las Vegas heat by driving up to Mount Charleston? Right? It could be 100 degrees at my house, and we could drive about half an hour, 45 minutes away to get up the mountain, and we find temperatures, what, 70s, 80s? It's similar as you compare Jerusalem and Jericho. Jericho's got a really, they said it could be snowing in Jerusalem, and it's, you know, sunny and warm in Jericho. Well, verse 29 tells us something interesting. Pay attention here. It says, Jesus and the disciples were heading out of Jericho when they encountered two blind men. That phrase is actually a point of contention for some skeptical critics of the Bible. If you look at the parallel in Luke 18, 35, you don't have to, but that's the parallel, one of the parallels. Luke tells us they were drawing near to Jericho and they encountered a blind man. So, have we here run into a contradiction in the Bible that the skeptics love? Have we just run across that single detail that proves that the Bible's not inspired? I think it's fair to say, don't you think it's fair to say that this would be a problem if there's no feasible explanation for why? Would you agree with me that if there's not one feasible explanation as to why they could say this so differently, that's a problem? That's fair, right? We'll give them that. Luke says one thing. Matthew says another thing. But can we also agree that if there is a feasible explanation, should we not give the text the benefit of the doubt? I mean, after all, the writers of Scripture were a lot closer to the events 2,000 years ago, than are we. So you think that's fair? It is a problem if there's no feasible explanation. If there is a feasible explanation, let's leave the text stand. Luke says they were approaching Jericho. Matthew says they were leaving Jericho. What could possibly explain that away? Let me give you two feasible explanations just to brighten your day. First, there were two Jerichos. 
The city that people lived in, of course, is one. But you know what that city was built right next to? It was built right next to, but not on top of, the ruins of the city of Jericho that Joshua and the Israelites encountered. The city whose walls fell at the shout of the children of God. So it is perfectly feasible that a person could be leaving Jericho, passing by the ruins, and approaching Jericho, entering the populated city. Would you guys agree that's feasible? There's one. A second one, just for fun, if you don't like that first one, Jesus and the disciples walked out the gates of Jericho. Thus, he was leaving the city, as Matthew said. When he heard the call of a blind man at the gate, what would Jesus have done when he heard himself called? What do you do when someone calls you from behind? You turn around. And Jesus and the disciples may have taken even just one step back toward that gate. And if he did, he is now approaching Jericho. That also is a feasible explanation. Okay, what about the fact that Matthew says there were two blind men, but Luke says there was one? This isn't hard, folks. Luke did not say there was one and only one, no more than one, never two, just one. Luke says there was one. Now, can we agree if there were two blind men, there was one? You can't get to two without one. No matter how hard you try in counting people, the only way to get to a second person is to have a first person. There's no contradiction here, friends. Now, why take the time to point this out? From time to time, it's good for me to remind us that there are answers to the objections raised by the skeptics. I won't always do this. I won't always tell you the answer to every objection that you might come across in Scripture in a Sunday morning message. I don't think the pulpit is for that primarily. But I want you to know this. Know this. Solid Christian thinkers, good pastors, good Bible teachers know about these objections. They know and the objections have not yet blown up the faith. Don't let an aggressive atheist on social media or some smug college professor or Bart Ehrman going out having debates, don't let them make you think that they've got the gotcha argument that defeats Christianity. And those poor ignorant pastors and theologians from years gone by just never saw what my college professor saw. By the way, can you fathom the concept, the concept that Oh my goodness, there have been 2,000 years of men of staggering brilliance who believed in the faith. But one long-haired professor from UNLV has it better. He's got the argument that knocks us out. That's not the case. I'm not telling you I'm going to give you the answer to every argument. I just want you to know the answer's there. Friends, God's word is solid, inspired, Inerrant, perfect. 
God's word is God's revelation of himself and we will do well to trust it and know that there's no objection that the Lord has not answered. Now look at verses 29 to 31. We'll actually get to the text here. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So Jesus and the disciples passing through, and there are great crowds following. That's not a surprise, by the way. It was the season leading up to the, leading up to the Passover. People were, were walking to Jerusalem. Millions, in fact. Maybe over two million people are going to be in Jerusalem by the time the Passover hits. Well, there are two blind men sitting by the road. They were probably there at the gates of the city in a public place begging for gifts from passers-by. Jericho actually had a lot of blind people around it because some of the bushes that were around the city of Jericho, some of the plants around there, were uniquely useful to ointments that they used on people's eyes back then. But the problem is those who were blind, even if they longed for a cure, even if they got a bunch of ointment, they had very little hope of seeing a cure or making a living. They had very little hope of living other than by begging. Because back then there were no government programs to help these men get jobs. There was no technology to help these men to be able to read and study as we have now. There was no Braille in 2000, you know, 2,000 years ago in the first century. This was a hard circumstance. This was a difficult circumstance. But the blind men heard Jesus is passing by. And they knew of the Savior. They knew of his teaching. And they surely had heard of his healing ministry. And they cried out. That Greek word behind the word for cried out is a word of intense noise. It's a word often used of the scream or shout of a woman in labor. And these men shouted at the top of their lungs, begging for Jesus to hear them and have mercy on them. Even when the crowds told the men to shut up, they didn't stop. Why not? You know why? Desperate, desperate people do what they got to do. They shouted all the more. They had no hope without Jesus' help. They knew they couldn't afford to miss their chance. So no matter how the people around them felt, these blind men, they threw all caution to the wind. They ignored social conventions. They didn't care about embarrassment. They didn't care about inconvenience. They just cried out to Jesus for mercy. Now what I want you to catch is what these men call Jesus. Two things that they say to identify Jesus, and they're tremendously significant. They call Jesus Lord and Son of David. The word Lord, kurios in Greek, is a very loaded word. It can be as simple as a formal respectful form of address, right? Akin to the way that you and I might use the word sir today. But the word also was often used as a divine term. In the Old Testament and our Bibles, when the formal name of God is written in Hebrew, when the word Yahweh is written in Hebrew, our Bibles write down in English what? 
Lord in all capital letters. If you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Old Testament, that's not because the Hebrew word for Lord was used. It's because the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh, was used. And in the Greek Septuagint, the word kurios, what these men are shouting, was also used as the, in taking the place of the formal name of God. Now, if the word Lord was used just by itself, we might be able to assume that the blind men were crying out, Sir! Sir! They might have been. But when you put it together with what follows, that simple sir makes no sense whatsoever. These men were identifying Jesus with the Lord of all. They were identifying Jesus with the Lord of the Old Testament. They were identifying Jesus as God himself. These men, even if they didn't fully grasp everything that they were saying, because many times in the Bible people had stuff come out their mouths that they only understood was right later. These men were calling Jesus God. And next they called Jesus Son of David. That is a clear Messiah reference. You'll know that if you've studied with us. Um, if you've been here for much time at all, you know this. The Bible is about God's fulfillment of his promise. You guys have heard that from me before, yes? God created mankind, rebelled and fell, and God in the garden made a promise that he would send a person into the world who would crush the devil. And the one to come is going to come into the world through the family line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through Judah. And that one to come is going to be a kingly descendant of Israel's greatest king before, King David. Right? 2 Samuel seven sixteen, God speaking to David through a prophet said, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, one of those Christmas passages, we're speaking of the Messiah to come, the Christ to come. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, listen, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God promised in the Old Testament that he would establish a kingdom through his promised one, his Messiah. And the Messiah would descend from David and he will rule on the throne of David and he will rule over the world in a never-ending kingdom. That is the promise of God. And when the blind men cry for mercy and they call Jesus son of David, they are appealing to Jesus as that promised Messiah, the promised chosen one sent by God. They're saying that Jesus is the one toward whom all of the scripture has pointed. They're saying that Jesus is the one in whom all of scripture finds its fulfillment. At least that's what their words tell us. I don't know how much of that they understood, but that's exactly what their words say. 
So what is the identity of Jesus? Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the promised one sent by God. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is both the God who rescues us and the king we serve. Jesus is the one who sets right the wrong of the sin of humanity and rescues a people from this fallen race from God, for God. He rescues a people for God from every nation, every tribe, every language. He rescues people for God. The blind man cried to Jesus with desperation because they knew exactly who he is. They would not let the crowds silence them because they knew that Jesus is their only hope. Now, let's, let's be smart. You guys don't want to be fools today, right? It's possible they were wrong, isn't it? Not from Scripture, of course, but we just have to say, I mean, they might be wrong about who Jesus is. Maybe Jesus isn't God. Maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah. If so, listen to me, if so, the response of Jesus is absolutely obvious what it has to be, isn't it? In fact, the response of Jesus is mandatory, isn't it? If Jesus is not God, if Jesus is not the Christ, the Messiah, it is absolutely imperative that Jesus set the people straight. Right? You can't let somebody call you God if you're not God. That's not okay. In fact, that's blasphemy. Listen to some verses. In fact, if you're in Matthew, you can flip to Matthew chapter 4 real quick. Does Jesus say anything good about those who would worship someone as God who is not God? Matthew 4, verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. Ooh, we've got the devil involved in this story. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I'll give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Would that Jesus let you call him God if he didn't believe himself to be God. Acts 12, 21-23. On an appointed day, Herod, wicked, wicked King Herod, put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Ooh. 
you don't want that to happen to you. So if somebody treats you as God and you're not God, don't let them. Revelation 19, 9 and 10. What about an angel? And the angel said to me, John writes, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. John says, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Friends, there is no way that Jesus could let people call him God and call him Messiah if Jesus does not believe himself to be God and Messiah. C.S. Lewis was really helpful in teaching us about this, wasn't he? We've got three options to deal with logically here. You could say, you could say Jesus is wrong about his identity. He thinks he's God, but he's not. Friends, that's what we call an insane person. That's a crazy person. Lewis says it's a man at the level who claims himself to be a poached egg. Now, do you think Jesus is an insane, blithering idiot? Does scripture give us any reason to think that? No. Or the other option is Jesus could be lying about it. He could be claiming to be God when he knows he's not. That, my friends, is an evil person. A cult leader, the devil of hell himself. Guys like Charles Manson and David Koresh claim to be incarnate deity. Is there anything in the Bible that would make us think Jesus is like that? Of course not. There's only one other option, friends. Only one left of the three. If he's not lying to us and if he's not nuts, he actually is God and Messiah. And I think it's clear from Jesus' character, his miracles, his teaching, and his resurrection. Jesus is God in the flesh, truly. And he's the Messiah promised by God. That, friends, is Jesus' identity. Go to our second point now. They'll come a little more quickly. Jesus' kindness. Jesus' kindness. Look at 32 to 34 of Matthew 20. Stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed We said the identity, kindness, and power of Jesus are on display here. We just saw his identity, didn't we? Now let's see his kindness. When the blind men cried out, even after the crowds tried to shut them up, Jesus comes to them, he invites them over, and Jesus speaks very kindly to them. He asks them, what do you want? And when the blind men told Jesus they want to see, notice what Jesus does. He took pity on them. He felt for them in his heart. Jesus cared. And out of kindness, Jesus acted. 
Church, Jesus is kind. Stop and let that sink in. Jesus is kind. Can you imagine what it would be like if he wasn't? God. God is kind. God is not cruel. Jesus healed sick people. That was kind. Jesus brought the dead back to life. That was kind. Jesus taught and healed and fed a hungry crowd that was invading his time off. That was kind. Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding to protect the reputation of a family. That was kind. But most of all, the word of God tells us, even through Jesus' own lips, there is no greater love that a man has than that he lays down his life for his friends. Paul tells us that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The kindness of God is fully on display in the gospel. We deserve the judgment of God. Do you get that? We we deserve to be crushed by God. God brings us to life and grants us salvation. That is kind. Now, I know this world can be ugly, can't it? I know we can get bogged down and... Sometimes we have theological arguments about all the implications of the sovereignty of God and how it works. And I know sometimes we feel like everything that comes from the pulpits of churches, sometimes we feel that everything that comes off the podcast or the social media accounts of preachers, even when they're supposedly talking about God, even when they're supposed to be doing things that, that honor God, sometimes they are just come off harsh and mean. And it's like, man, it doesn't seem to be any kindness. And sometimes the word of God really does demand we take a stand and it may not look kind to the world around us. But know this. Know this from the pity in the heart of Jesus toward the blind men. Know this from the bleeding Savior on the cross bearing your sin. Jesus is loving. Jesus is kind. Even when you don't understand him even when you can't figure out all of his ways, even when you can't make all the points of what you think to be true line up exactly the way that makes you comfortable, Jesus is kind. And that's something we have to believe because the word of God tells us. Third point, the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus. 34, again, it says, And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight. Look at the power of Jesus there. Jesus touched the eyes of these men, and immediately, right then, no flaw, no pause, no delay, the men received their sight. Jesus healed the blind men by a touch, and that is incredible power shown by Jesus. Now, interestingly, a look at Scripture shows us that the idea of healing the blind is not something that you find often in practice. In the Old Testament, blind people are not given sight. You can't find an Old Testament story of one of the prophets giving sight to a blind man. 
in the New Testament, other than the restoration of Saul's sight in Acts, and Jesus blinded Saul, no blind person in the New Testament outside of the Gospels ever receives sight back that we see. But something about the idea of the blind being healed is a climactic kind of miracle, a miracle that is as extreme to some as the raising of the dead. And restoration of sight is at the same time one of the most common miracles we have the gospel writers record Jesus performing. Side note, the miracle of giving sight to the blind points to the identity of Jesus as the promised Messiah from God. In Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, a very, a very clear text about the coming of the Messiah, God's word says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah tells us when God's promised one, when the son of David, when the Messiah arrives, the blind are going to see and those who can't speak are going to speak. And here, two blind men approach Jesus and they call Jesus son of David and they cry out for his mercy. And unlike those of modern faith healers, the miracles of Jesus are real. By the way, the miracles of Jesus, they are immediate they are complete. They are verifiable. Now, Jesus did use different means to heal, right? Sometimes a word. Sometimes a touch. One time he spat on the ground and made mud and slapped it on the dude's eyes. Sometimes the process of the miracle looks different. One time it's instant. One time he says a man's going to be healed after he goes to wash in a particular pool. One time Jesus healed in two stages. But the fact remains that the miracles of Jesus happened quickly, they happened completely, and they happened in a way that could not be faked. They happened in a way that you could not say later, that was just an adrenaline rush. But you know, think about, think about modern faith healing ministries. They get the lights and the smoke and the big arena and the moving music and the screaming crowds and the chanting and the repetition till they pretty much hypnotize you mentally. And they convince a person who is wheelchair bound to stand up and they're like, aha, see, I healed him, only to have them days later be no different. That's an adrenaline rush. That's not a healing. But ain't no adrenaline rush give a blind man back his sight. Jesus has power. He has the power to give sight to the blind. He has the power to raise the dead. He has the power to do what only God can do. That's the power of Jesus. Fourth point, last point. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. 34 says, and Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. What did the men do once they saw? They followed Jesus. They're healed. They're never going to be the same. They didn't return to the gates to keep begging. They went with Jesus. 
the Luke passage and the Mark passage talk about the guys getting up and like throwing down their cloak and just walking over to Jesus, you know, for the healing. It's not like they're going, gosh, I won't be able to find my cloak. Once they can see, they can pick it up real easy. I think it's clear, though, these men not only have been healed, they, they believe. Now they're Jesus' disciples, too. Jesus did more than give these men sight. He gave them life. And note that this shows us a major difference in how Jesus healed the blind men this time compared to when Jesus healed two blind men back in chapter 9, verse 27 through 31 of Matthew. Because some people think, oh, this is just the same story repeated. But see, in chapter 9, Jesus told the blind man he healed after he called them into a house, which doesn't happen here. He told the blind man he healed in chapter 9, don't tell anybody what I've done. Keep it quiet. Here, Jesus lets these men follow him on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem with no restrictions. The Savior is walking to the cross and it's now time for people to know exactly who he is, Lord and Son of David. And it's time for people to follow Jesus as their Lord too. Let the identity of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, and the power of Jesus lead you to follow Jesus. That's what all this passage is about. We see Jesus in his identity as God the Son and as the Messiah. We see Jesus as loving and tender and merciful and kind. We see Jesus in with exercising a power that you and I can't even imagine having. What could we possibly do other than follow this Jesus? Jesus is God. Jesus is loving. Jesus is mighty. Jesus is Lord. Our only response that makes any sense is to bow down to him, to give ourselves to him, to go with him for the rest of our days. So if you're hearing this and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, here's the call. Do what the blind men did. What do I mean? First, understand your desperate situation. Know that you need help. And that you're helpless on your own to please God. You can't do it. You have sinned against God. You've earned the judgment of God. And you cannot work your way out of it. Believe in Jesus. The blind men did. Believe that Jesus is God and the promised one sent by God. The Christ. The Messiah. Believe Jesus died to pay for your sins. Believe that Jesus rose again from the grave and is alive right now. Believe that Jesus is kind enough and powerful enough to save you. Believe that Jesus is the only one who can save you. And in your belief in Jesus, like the blind men, cry out to Jesus. They shouted, have mercy on us, son of David. You call on Jesus to have mercy on you. He is the son of David. He is God in the flesh. Cry out for him to have mercy on you because of his shed blood and because of his resurrection from the grave. And, like the blind men, commit to follow Jesus. Turn your life over to him. Ask him to lead you. Ask him to be your master from now on. Believing in Jesus and turning from sin to follow him is what God commands you to do. Repent 
Believe and be saved. Follow Jesus. And most of us here this morning are already believers in the Lord Jesus. But I wonder if we too need to be reminded to let the identity of Jesus and the kindness of Jesus and the power of Jesus lead us to follow Jesus. Let me ask you, are you loving Jesus for his kindness? Are you seeing the kindness of Jesus and the power of Jesus on display in the word of God? Do you remember, and not all of you will, by the way, because some of you were saved young, and you older folks, you who came to Christ later in life, do you remember your desperation outside of Jesus? How you had no hope but him? Do you remember how much you still need his grace? Are you still Willing to follow him? Stop and think. Ask that right now. Am I still willing to have Jesus as my Lord? Friends, following Jesus is not a one and done decision. Now, I will say, once salvation is accomplished, you can't lose it. But... Being a child of God requires a regular, a repeated, a daily, and hourly, sometimes, decision to turn away from self and trust in and obey Christ. Give in to his lordship. Jesus is God. Jesus is good. Jesus is mighty. Jesus has shown you kindness upon kindness. So as we close, friends, ask yourself, where do I need to go to follow Jesus? Ask that of your heart right now. Where where do I need to follow Jesus? Do you need to strengthen your commitment to worship and to the church? Maybe you do. Do you need to turn away from a particular sin? You need to repent of just not loving God like you should. Do you need to remember that asking Jesus to be your Savior includes your promise that you will obey his commands? Did you realize that? When you said, will you save me, you simultaneously said, you get to be in charge, not me. Jesus is still kind. Turn to him. Believe in him. Follow him. Let the identity of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, and the power of Jesus lead you to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth you display in it. And God, I would ask you, I would ask you to accomplish what only you can accomplish through your word today.
we need, Lord, we need you to do a work in us. Some folks need to know, Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus' identity. Some folks here need to believe for the first time in who Jesus really is. Some of us who have believed need to be reminded of who Jesus is, God and not us. Some of us need to remember the kindness and the mercy of Jesus. Because sometimes we get so focused on even heady doctrines and heavy things. We get so focused there that we forget that you are good and kind. Sometimes we forget the power of Jesus to change lives, including ours. And so often we think we don't need to follow Jesus. Would you make it so, Lord, that we will follow you faithfully and honor you deeply? For every person in this room, Lord, who has come to Christ in faith, we have already surrendered our lives to you. Lord, take a tight hold on us and draw us close because we won't make it on our own. We are so prone to wander. We are so prone to do things our way, to think that we're smarter than you, to think that we're better than you, to think that we would do things in a way that you don't do them so we know more than you to think that we deserve the freedom to sin? God, blast that out of us, but do it lovingly so that we can survive and follow you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.